Well, good morning. Good to see you all. If I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I'm a pastor here, um, and I'd love to meet you before you leave. Um, uh, one follow-up announcement before we get into our text. We're going to return to this gospel reading from Matthew again at the end of our time today. Um, we are nearing the end of the year, and as you notice, we are in the middle of a, a construction project. Um, if you haven't had a chance but you would like to contribute to that and participate from a financial perspective, there are some pledge cards on the back shelf by the, the audiovisual room. Um, if you're interested in that, you can fill one of those out. For those who have made pledges and you would like to receive um, credit on this year's giving statement, um, you have a, a few weeks left to do that, so just keep that in mind. Uh, but things are getting exciting. Uh, it's good to see something coming up now. Um, we are going to, as I mentioned last week, plant ourselves in the Hebrew prophets throughout the Advent season. Today we are going to be in Isaiah 11. Before we get to our text today, um, most of us in the room remember, uh, I guess most of us of a, a certain age, remember the morning of September 11th, 2001, like it was yesterday, right? I would imagine everybody can sort of pinpoint exactly where you were, maybe even color of the room, the people in the room with you, the smell of the room on that morning, when the vulnerabilities of a global superpower, the vulnerabilities of our nation were put on full display as planes flew into the Twin Towers and some other locations around the country and our nation was shaken to its core. Now in the years that followed that event, as the powers that be tried to wrap their minds around what happened that morning and how in the world could we allow it to happen, one of the explanations that was offered by the administration in charge at that point was that the attack was due to, or the attack was at least made possible in part by a failure of imagination. Do you remember that explanation? A failure of imagination. I mean, national security was certainly on the radar at that point. point. There were procedures and policies in place to ensure at least some degree of safety and security, but you can't really put the needed safeguards into place when a threat comes out of left field, when it's something that is entirely unexpected. I mean, the folks in charge presumably never imagined a scenario like the one that unfolded. So, obviously, without imagining it, there is going to be a lack of preparation to prevent it. A failure of imagination. It's sort of like the idea of unknown unknowns or maybe the black swan theory where it's hard to predict scenarios that are completely outside of our normal expectations. We often aren't aware of what we don't know. And if you're not aware of what you don't know, it's potentially going to be one of the greatest threats to most types of security. So we can imagine that, whether we're talking about big, broad types of security, global security, national security, or cyber security, or if we want to hone in on something much more personal, home security or property security, things like 
that. If you knew about new technologies, if you were aware of some of the new methodologies those who commit crimes were planning to use, you could potentially prevent those security disasters. But a failure of imagination makes that quite difficult. A failure of imagination. And I think there's some spiritual significance to this idea of failure of imagination as well. A significance that we find expressed explicitly throughout the Hebrew prophets. This is what one Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, refers to as the prophetic imagination. The prophetic imagination. Maybe you've heard that term before, but one of the main tasks that the Hebrew prophets engaged in was this process of reframing the history of the people of Israel, an understanding of their faith in Yahweh in light of the new and often catastrophic, destructive realities of the present, and then reimagining a new future that was much different than the catastrophic present. The point, of course, being that it is impossible or at least quite unlikely to live into your identity or to live into any new sort of a reality if you don't first imagine or conceive of something altogether different than the present. And I think in our day and age, a failure of imagination continues to be one of the most prominent threats to faithfulness for the people of God. So we're looking at the prophet Isaiah today. We're going to be in chapter 11 again. And this is in the middle of an incredibly discouraging state of affairs for the people of Israel, for the people in Jerusalem, and really Judah in general. This is right on the heels, at the end of chapter 10, right on the heels of a pretty sober analysis of the facts. The end of Isaiah chapter 10, this is the the image that we get. The axe is chopping the tree. We found similar language in our gospel reading today from Matthew chapter 3. The axe chopping the tree. The prophet says, the lofty will be humbled and brought low. The Lord will cut down the thickets, not to harvest something useful like lumber. No, this was not a positive chopping down of the tree. This was judgment for evil and injustice so that it might not continue, that these systems of evil and sin might not continue to destroy both the people of God and her neighbors. So that's the end of chapter 10, which brings us to our text today, the beginning of Isaiah 11. Again, we find a message of hope and expectation, despite those disastrous circumstances that seem to be the end of the story. We begin reading in the first verse of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The stump of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, the stump, of course, referring to a plant that had been chopped down. Nothing is going to grow from that stump, at least nothing productive. It's more or less a waste, it's not going to produce or bear any fruit. 
have this image of a stump, and then we're told that it's the stump of Jesse. So remember the promise that was given to King David. The promise was there was always going to be somebody from his line. Somebody from the line of Jesse, his father, on the throne for God's people. And that promise is that it will be that way forever. And in the grand scheme of things, Isaiah's message is not too far after the reign of King David. But in the time of Isaiah, the tree of Jesse was destroyed. It was pretty much non-existent. It was a stump. The Davidic dynasty had failed. That whole project was a disaster. There wasn't anybody ruling from the line of Jesse. It is just a stump. Nothing positive, no life, nothing productive. Sure, you can use a stump as a stool to sit on and get some rest, or a stool to prop your foot up on and tie your shoe or something like that, but that's about it. The stump of Jesse, that image, is a constant reminder that that whole project, it was a failed endeavor. At this point, it seems like it's pretty much a forgotten promise or, at worst, maybe a cruel joke. Maybe this promise is delivered, but there was no intention from God to ever follow through, to bring that to fruition. But in the middle of death and decay... When all that is evident is this stump of Jesse, the prophet imagines, the prophet imagines something unexpected, a shoot from that stump, something unexpected, but a faint hope of future growth, of possibilities. That there's no evidence for in the present, but possibilities nonetheless. There is a sign of life when all that surrounds is death because of this shoot from the stump of Jesse. An unidentified sprout at this point, but a shoot that would eventually bear fruit when all that surrounds is death. And then the prophet goes on to describe the one who would come. Verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The one who is coming, that Isaiah points to, set in contrast, all of the previous kings that ruled over Israel, not that none of them were good, not that none of them had any redeeming qualities at all, but they did fail in various ways in these regards in wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, 
and the fear of the Lord, the, the desire and ability to live life and to rule in a way that was congruent with the plans and purposes of God. They failed when it came to righteousness and faithfulness, but the prophet imagines one who would come, who would wear righteousness and faithfulness as a belt. And these are the unlikely the unimaginable realities of a king and a reign like that. We continue reading in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the prophet transitions into this new set of imagery, describing not the king now, but the world that the king will bring. Think about each of these relationships that are mentioned in this text. Wolf and lamb. Leopard and the young goat. Calf and lion. Cow and the bear. Or a lion eating straw like an ox. What's so strange about all of this? Well, that's simply not how the world works, right? That's not how our world operates, so it's foolish to expect those things because it contradicts basic facts of life. It contradicts basic rules of the animal kingdom. It would be foolish to expect those relationships to get along like that. Because each of those relationships is defined by violence and domination and hostility and an absolute commitment to self-preservation. This is the world that the prophet imagines. Now, none of that, of course, is possible unless there is a dramatic, radical transformation, unless this shoot from Jesse Stump, does something dramatic to alter our basic tendencies, our susceptibility to sin and the powers of darkness that are constantly warring against our souls. But that's precisely the promise the people are offered. The impossible becomes possible. We're talking about something much more significant than a plant-based whopper, right? The impossible becomes possible. The absurd, the absurd becomes likely. Not foolish, but likely. You can expect it. It becomes the hope that we imagine. The hope that we cling to and long for. This is what we await. Verse 10, the last verse of our reading from the prophets today, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
a prophetic imagination, the ability to imagine something different might be one of the necessary tools for us in our waiting. The season is a season of waiting, right? And during Advent, we are considering some of the tools that we might need to wait faithfully because waiting faithfully is difficult. It's not easy. It's challenging. We sang that this morning. It's hard to wait. It is hard to wait. It's even harder to remain faithful in our waiting. So we are considering what might we need in order to increase our chances of waiting faithfully for our king. Last week, we focused on that first necessary tool that will help in our faithful waiting. We suggested that faithful waiting begins with a recognition of our need. It begins with a recognition of our need for correction and a willingness to become a people marked by repentance. Today we focus on the need of imagination. Imagination. Allowing our minds and our assumptions about our lives, our assumptions about the world we live in, allowing our faith in our king to reframe all of those assumptions so that we can first be able to imagine and have faith in a world. To imagine and have faith in a reality and a kingdom that is vastly different than what we know now and what seems like an impossibility, but something we are promised will one day be. And then if we can begin to imagine that, we might then be able to discern ways in which that reality and that reign is currently breaking into the present. But we can't discern that if we don't first see what the future in God's kingdom will be like. The Apostle Paul gives voice to this sense of yearning, the sense of waiting that we, together with all of creation, enter Longing for the world to be set right. Longing for the absurd to be our reality. In Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read a lengthy section here beginning in verse 19. This is what Paul says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. This is critical and understand in our waiting because at times even today even after the first 
advent of our Messiah in Bethlehem and the life he enabled, at times we look around, maybe many times we look around, and it seems pretty dark. It seems like there's nothing but a stump. Maybe that image is an accurate description of where you find yourself today. A stump. No life. Death and decay seems like everything has been damaged and destroyed, and, and we groan. We long for it to be fixed, for our brokenness to be restored, for the brokenness of all of creation to be redeemed and restored, but often we can't even see glimpses of hope that that will ever be a reality. Maybe because we're blinded by the status quo, or blinded by reality as it is today, our challenging situation. Maybe blinded by our sin or the apparent absence of God in the wait. The apparent inactivity of God. Or the apparent refusal of God to step into our darkness to make his presence known while we wait in darkness. As people of faith, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, we acknowledge that we hope in something we cannot see. It's sort of what we have signed on for. We hope in something we cannot see, and if we hope in something we cannot see, we must learn patience. Trusting that God is here, trusting that God is working, even if it appears as though he remains idle, we trust that God will be with us to the end and will restore all things. Our gospel reading for today, we read it a moment ago from Matthew chapter 3, depicted John the Baptist in the wilderness, preaching his message of repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the prophet goes on to quote, or Matthew goes on to quote from the prophet Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, admittedly, this seems to be a little bit curious, but it is a common Advent text. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, is this a season of waiting and longing, or are we working? Are we preparing? Do we have a task to engage in, or are we simply waiting, or is it possible that it's a little bit of both? Maybe unsurprisingly, I think it is a little bit of both. Henry Nouwen put it this way. He said, how do we wait for God? We wait with patience. But patience does not mean passivity. Waiting patiently is not like waiting for the bus to come, the rain to stop, or the sun to rise. It is an active waiting in which we live the present moment to the full in order to find there the signs of the one we are waiting for. So this season, while it is not one of absolute inactivity, it does call us into a season, a time, moments of patient waiting. 
Preparing the way for the Lord is not so much about going out and paving roads and building highways so that Christ has a path to make it to us. We're not paving roads and building railroad lines so that Christ then has the ability to arrive. No, Christ is all-powerful and has the ability. And Jesus is. We confess and believe, even when we don't see, Jesus is on the move. Jesus is active. Jesus has arrived in in Bethlehem as the Messiah the Jewish people longed for, and Jesus is active even today, continuing to work and move among all the inhabitants of the earth, and our future hope is Jesus will return. Our faithful preparation and our faithful waiting is not what makes the return of Christ possible. It's not what makes Christ's activity in our world possible. In fact, I've shared this before, but I think it's so important for us to keep in mind during the Advent season. It's something that Pastor Rich Velotis once said. He put it like this, the hope of Advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting. It's not that our faithful waiting is what makes Christ's return and Christ's presence among us possible. The hope of Advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting. We often are not. The hope of Advent is that Christ is faithful in his coming. And because of Christ's faithfulness, because of Christ's activity, his moving, his working, that is precisely where we find strength, and hope, which will enable patient waiting. We trust that Christ is active and present, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand how that is a possibility, and we commit to wait. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. But I think the Spirit would say to us, comfort. Comfort. Comfort in your weight. It won't be forever. There's going to be a day. There will be a day when the disastrous situation you face will end. Where life will be brought to your decay. Or what appears to be a stump in your life where there's going to be some green life shooting up from that stump. So during this season, in patience, we wait. It's uncomfortable, but we wait. And we hope and we pray that entering into this intentionally will form us, will teach us how to remain patient. The early church father, Tertullian, went so far as to say this regarding our inability or at least the great difficulty the human race has with patient waiting. Tertullian wrote, Impatience is, as it were, the original sin in the eyes of the Lord. For, to put it in a nutshell, every sin is to be traced back to impatience. Everything can be traced back to impatience. Think about that in the the scope of the history of civilization, or think about it in relation to your life. 
think often when we miss the mark, when we fall into sin or when we jump feet first into sin, it's often the result of impatience of some kind. And so we want to resist that tendency to be impatient. This is one of the benefits of the Advent season. In patience, we wait, not trying to achieve anything, not trying to work and achieve so that Christ will act, but rather trusting that Christ is moving and working even when we don't see it. And so today we ask our King to help us imagine new realities, to help us imagine and conceive of what life is like under his rule that we might be able to then discern, to have our eyes open to ways in which that activity is breaking into the present. And when we find those instances, we welcome them and we join in. We actively wait for our coming King. Kevin, if you all want to come up, and if you would stand as we prepare for communion today. These are the two takeaways I want to leave us with, imagination and discernment. Imagination and discernment. This is how we faithfully wait. We imagine the seemingly impossible realities of the kingdom of God, and we then discern ways in which that kingdom is breaking in today. We welcome it and we join in. And so we pray today, Lord, we wait patiently for you. If we're honest, many times we wait impatiently for you, but we're asking for your strength to be patient. In a room this size, I understand that there are folks who are walking through incredibly difficult seasons, who are in a very real period of waiting of their own. Lord Jesus, we trust that you see, that you know, that you don't see or know from a distance, but that you are walking with us. We pray that you would make your presence known to each of us in our waiting. Teach us to wait faithfully. Give us patience, we pray. We're going to come to the table together. If you're new or visiting, we invite you to join as we celebrate around the body and blood of our Lord. I'm going to say a prayer for us by way of invitation. After that prayer, you can come forward. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. As you come to the front, there will be somebody here waiting with the cup and with bread, and the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us grace 
to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?